Would you like to come inside? Uh, thanks. I don't think I can. Can I come back again? Yeah. I built this for you. There are others, you know. There were eight of us. It really mean a lot to them. Yeah. Anytime. They're all welcome here. Iowa. Field of Dreams, and trust me when I tell you, when we get to heaven, we're going to know the difference between heaven and Iowa. Not that Iowa's a bad place to be from or visit, all right, so not to offend you this morning. Well, hey, it's great to see all of you here this morning uh, as we continue in our study through the book of Revelation. Today we come to chapter number four, and we really... Uh, come to a corner here in the book of Revelation where we take a turn. We're studying through the book of Revelation verse by verse, and so uh, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and find Revelation chapter 4. That would be great. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, chapter 4 is on page 495, and uh, you can find that there. It's almost the very end of the Bible if you're using the one we provide for you. It's almost the very end, the last few pages of that Bible. So this morning, as we shift into this new chapter in the book of Revelation, the scene here now shifts from the church on earth up to heaven. And we, as you remember, we began with John, the author of the book, on the island of Patmos. And he was there, and we started there, and we came to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and the letters to those churches, the messages to the believers there in John's day. And then today we come to chapter number four, and we are going to heaven together. And uh, also in chapter five, we'll look at heaven as well. But page 495 in that Bible, we are coming to this third and final section of the book of Revelation. If you'll remember, I'll give you a little bit of a review here. If you remember back in the introduction in chapter one of Revelation, as our pastor taught that, the book of Revelation gives us an internal outline that we can use. John, the Apostle John, was instructed to write the things which he had seen previously. Then the second part was he was instructed to write the things which are taking place now in, in his present. And then the third part was to write the things which will take place after that. So the things which he had seen was... Uh, 
Jesus and and his ministry. John had experienced that. John had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ some 60 years earlier and uh, had had seen Jesus again in chapter 1 of Revelation. And that is what he had seen, and he was to write about that, that past tense. Secondly, John was instructed to write the things which are, and that refers to the seven letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor that we've been discussing over the past several Sundays in that mini-series, Churchopedia, okay? And then, these were these seven literal churches that John was writing letters to, and they were in John's day, but if you remember, that also gave us a panoramic overview of church history from John's day up till today. It was last week that we looked at uh, those two final churches, the church at Philadelphia and the church of Laodicea. And we said the church of Laodicea is the picture of the church in general today and in the last days. Then, thirdly, it was this third and final part. It's the rest of the book of Revelation. It's chapter 4 on. John is told to write the things which take place after this. These are lots of events, but it's triggered, first of all, by the rapture of the church, the tribulational period, uh, the millennial time, and the kingdom, and some other things that we're going to get into, but it's all triggered by the rapture. And I, I hope to show you that today clearly. So it's a turning point here in chapter 4. It begins this last and final section in the book of Revelation. And here's, here's the neat thing, is this is the area, chapter 4 and on, is the area that people are real interested in. You know, it's, it's the section where there's some prophecy and future events are told and things like that. People get really interested in this third and final part of the book of Revelation, chapter 4 on. Well, that brings us here to chapter 4, and John has four experiences that I want to share with you this morning in heaven. And before we jump into those, what those four experiences are, uh, would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father God, as we look now to the subject of heaven, we can only imagine what awaits us. And you've told us that our citizenship is not on earth, but in heaven. One day you'll bring us home, that this world is not our home. And we appreciate all that we have here on this earth and that you allow us to enjoy. We appreciate those things. But God, help us to understand that as believers, we go to a city whose builder and maker is God. And so as we look at heaven over the next couple of weeks, would you prepare our hearts for eternity? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we enter this glimpse of heaven that John gives to us, John has four experiences. The first one being... God's summons. And that's in your notes this morning if you're taking notes. Number one is God's summons. Let's look at verse number one of chapter four and the first part of verse number two. We get right into this. It says this, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. There's that after this mention again. The first part of verse 2 says, Immediately I was in the Spirit. And we'll stop right there. Immediately I was in the Spirit. So in the first three chapters, if you'll remember, of the book of Revelation, the church is referred to many, many times. Uh, Now beginning here in chapter 4 through chapter 19 and beyond, you will find no reference to the church 
on earth any longer. Okay, that is that is significant. That is a a reason right there that we at the Orchard Church hold a strong pre-tribulational position on when the rapture will happen. That it will happen before the great tribulation. We believe that the church will be taken prior or just as the tribulation begins and will be taken up to heaven and not experience the wrath of God, the tribulation period here on earth. And and just hold on to your seat this morning because we're going to see that proved out in almost every phrase that John writes here. In fact, uh, there is a picture of the rapture here in the very first verse. Uh, God is summoning the church into heaven. Now, back in previous chapters, you'll remember that Jesus had promised, it was in chapter 3 last week, Jesus promised the faithful believers of the church at Philadelphia. He said, and by the way, that refers to faithful believers of all generations, a promise. So if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to catch a few things under God's summons here. And the first one is a promise. This promise in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. This promise to be kept from the tribulation. He says this in chapter 3, verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Which refers to the tribulation. Boy, chapter 3, verse 10. You ought to just highlight that, underline it, put a star by that in your Bible. That is a great verse to go to as, as we remember. And we see this promise here. Now in context, we come to chapter 4, verse 1. In context, this refers to John, the Apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos. He was there as a prisoner. If you'll remember, we talked about this in the introduction. It was a prison colony, really. The Roman government put John there to suffer and to die and, and just place them on that island. It's, and it's on that island, John receives this vision from God and God says to John, come up here into heaven. Come on up into heaven. So in context, that's what we're reading about. But make no mistake about it that this is a very vivid picture of the rapture in the beginning of chapter 4. The rapture that the Bible talks about. It's a picture of it. John says... In verse 1, after these things. Okay, so here's some, here's some clues to why we believe this. After these things, the first three words of chapter 4. You might just underline those. Well, what did John just finish doing? He just finished writing these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, the words and messages of Jesus to believers in John's day. Again, also a, a picture of, of churches throughout history. Uh, from John's day right up to today. John says, after these things, after the church age ends, what happens? John, John the believer, representing the church, goes up into heaven. It says here in verse number 1 that a door standing open in heaven. Again, another phrase here. Uh, the second thing I want you to notice is this. John also likens the voice of God to a trumpet. This is, if you're like a Bible buff and have been one for a while, you're going to recognize this right off. This reminds us of the passage of Scripture about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which says this, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So you see that mention of a trumpet sound again. Another reference here, another indication that this is a picture of the rapture. The voice says, come up here. 
again, a picture of the rapture taking place. Even on the end of verse number 2. If you look at verse number 2 there, we, we, uh, we read the first part of that together. It says, immediately I was in the Spirit. Okay? Reminding us of just another great truth when it comes to the rapture. The Bible teaches us at the end of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verse 52, that when we are raptured, when believers are raptured, if we, you are here for that, it will happen in the twinkling of an eye. You know how fast that is? I hope you do, because I don't. It's immediate. It's just fast. Immediately it will happen. We will be caught up into that door into heaven. He says there, he says also, not only immediately, but the next few words of verse number 2 says, I was in the Spirit. Again, another phrase that indicates the rapture here. Like John, those raptured, the Bible tells us, immediately have their spirit body. Okay, Not this fleshly shell anymore, but a new spirit body. How many of you are going to be glad for that? Just kind of give it a new body. You're like, man, I trade that one in, finally. This perfect one that is given to me by God. And as we learned from last week as well, Pastor Doug mentioned we're given a new name even. So a new body and a new name here. So we see another indication of that this is a picture of the rapture happening all before the tribulation. So uh, in the Spirit, given a new body as the rapture takes place, you're in the Spirit, not in this fleshly shell anymore. Another thing I want you to see is that in chapters 4 and 5 in a moment with heaven and all that's going on there with God, it is immediately after chapters 4 and 5 that we come to chapters 6 through 19 and we have a description of the seven-year tribulation and judgment on earth. A description of the tribulation, but it comes after this description of the rapture. So, man, all of this packed into the first couple of verses here in chapter 4, we have this picture for us of the rapture of the church. It happens. Then you have the tribulation and judgment on the earth. So you put all that together as we have studied from chapter 1, and you have this picture of the church age, and then the church age ending. And then a door in heaven opens up, and a sound of a trumpet, and a sound of a voice, and saved people are brought up immediately, and the tribulation on earth then begins. Uh, we want to show you a timeline up here on the screen, and this is something you know we've shown over the last couple of weeks, but it's a good timeline to take a look at. You've got the church age here, and it ends with the rapture. And then it's following the rapture that the tribulation is described. And then the second coming, we'll get into that uh, in several weeks ahead. So there's a, a good timeline for you right there. So here we are in heaven, chapter 4 today. And you know what? All of us as believers, we want to know more about heaven. The Bible does give us quite a bit about heaven. Heaven's mentioned over 550 times. And so we know some about heaven. Consistently in Scripture, you, you, we are told that heaven is up. Up, And I think we all know that and have felt that. But we see that in the Bible over and over again, that it is up. But there is a lot about heaven we don't know and that it's a mystery and we wish we knew. I'll tell you this. There's no shortage of people today who claim 
to have gone to heaven and come back and want to tell us about it. Uh, all you have to do is go to Borders or Barnes & Noble and slap down $25 for their book, and they'll tell you all about their experience. Now, perhaps you've read, there's a, a pretty good book out there called 90 Minutes in Heaven, and there's another one that I was just told about this week, and it, it's about a little boy who goes to heaven, and this Christian family, and this story, and this horrible accident that happens, and this, this little boy's account of it that uh, that is just supernatural, really. And I'll tell you this this morning, uh, who am I to guess or second guess that experience? God can do amazing things, can't he? And, and work in wondrous ways, and his ways are higher than our ways. Um, but then there's some accounts about people's trips to heaven that are quite bizarre and flow against the current of Scripture. My point is this. Let's look at the Bible first. That, that's my point. In contrast, you know, save the $25 because we have in the pages of this holy book two very reliable human witnesses right here, and that is the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John who got to see heaven. We know that these are two people who went to heaven. They're reliable, they're trustworthy resources, and they give us some descriptions and details about heaven. So we want to look at the Bible first. It is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul is, uh, gets to go in and see heaven. And he's told there in heaven not to share what he saw or heard. That's interesting. And we come here this morning to Revelation chapter 4. And John here is caught up into heaven. And he's instructed to do just the opposite. He's instructed to write and record these things. It's, it's time now. It's God's timing. It's important now. And so uh, John writes and records these things. Paul says and, and writes how he was caught up into the third heaven. Now, to get away from any confusion, I want to just share quickly why that is said. There are three types of heavens mentioned in the pages of Scripture. Now, they are not three levels of heaven. And you might be sitting there worried right now about which one you're getting into. You know, check my ticket, and is there, you know, a level on here or any, anything like that? No, uh, it is simply a description of all of the skies and space and heavens. It is in Isaiah 55, verse 10, which uh, the writer talks about the heavens. And he's talking about where the, the birds fly around and the, where the clouds float around and our atmosphere, our skies... And then it, it is in uh, Psalm chapter 8 where a little shepherd boy by the name of David writes about how he's looking into the second heaven. And this is where it's space and our universe and we see the stars and the moon and the planets and all of these things. The second heaven. And then in scripture you also have a reference to the third heaven. And this is where... Paul and John are caught up to. This is the dwelling place of God, the third heaven, where His throne is, where His presence is, where mercy and blessings flow from, the place where worship of God takes place, where in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, that's the third heaven. That is the heaven we're talking about today, the third heaven, or the dwelling place of God. Here's something interesting. We can visit the first and second heavens, can't we? You know, you've rode on an airplane and been in the sky. 
you know, we can do that. There's been some people who have visited the second heaven. They have gone into outer space, that that part of uh, where the stars are and the planets and, and our moon. Let me tell you this, folks. No amount of human effort or achievement will allow us to get to the third heaven that is only by the grace of God. It's only by His grace and mercy. So we read about this first and this second and this third heaven in the Bible, but those are not levels of heaven. Don't let that confuse you. Today we're talking about the third heaven or the dwelling place of God. So that's what we'll refer to the rest of today. So in verse number 2, John here is supernaturally transported into heaven, the third heaven, and he sees a throne. And he sees someone there on that throne in heaven, and it is God the Father. The throne, let me say something about this before we move on to point 2 this morning. The throne, we find it mentioned in chapter 4, some 14 times, 12 specifically about God's throne. So it is it, it is a key topic here. I wouldn't argue that with you. But with that being said, I disagree with many of the commentators on Revelation chapter 4 who said the main theme and emphasis of chapter 4 is the throne in heaven. And I disagree with that because without God on the throne in heaven, the throne is meaningless. It's just a throne. It's not the throne itself. It's the one sitting on the throne. And that's the central theme of of this chapter. It's, It's heaven. It's God Himself. And what makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. That's what's going to make heaven heaven. It won't be the streets of gold or the tree of life or the river that flows or anything else that we read about. And we're told in Scripture that in heaven there'll be no more pain or suffering or crying and things like that. And those are wonderful things. But that is not what makes heaven heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of God. In fact, without the presence of God, it's hell. Because one of the primary... A descriptions of or punishments of hell is the eternal separation from God. One pastor said it like this. He said, in heaven, God will never hide his face and Satan will never show his. So that's, that's heaven for you. And during this glimpse of heaven that John experiences, he experiences God's summons, this picture of being caught up into heaven, this picture of every believer being raptured up before the tribulation. Now we come to the second part of verse number 2. And with that point of clarification about the throne, I would say John's next and second experience is God's throne. God's throne. So look at verse number 2. It says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, in your Bible... It ought to have a capital O with the word one. One, it's talking about that as a reference to God the Father. One sat on that throne. And so the first thing that John sees in heaven is God is on his throne. That is important. Don't miss how important that that little statement is in verse 2. Because the first thing John sees is God here on his throne and that is important because what we find in verse number two will sustain you and i through all the days of our lives here on this earth 
Listen, whatever difficulty you're going through, whatever trial you may be facing, whatever issue or disappointment there is, what is going to sustain you is that God is on the throne in heaven. God is in control. It's reminding us that that God is in control of our lives and in our circumstances as well. Uh, Listen, the believers that John was writing to in his day here were going through some intense persecution and intense suffering. So how does John comfort them? The first thing he says is that I went to heaven and God is on his throne. Listen, it doesn't matter what you're going through. You know, many of us have different struggles and things like that. God is in control. He's in control of it all. That is a message for us today as well, that God is in control. You know, it was over the last few weeks that, you know, it just became a blitz in my mailbox of political postcards. Was I the only one, you know? Were you like sick of that or what? And, And our phone, we moved recently, so we're not on the do not call list yet. And everybody called us. We got calls from Idaho about if I was going to vote for certain representatives. And we're like, we've never heard of them, man. And they're like, oh, sorry. And uh, we got phone calls at all, you know, all hours of the day and night for political things. And then, you know, we had a vote. I went out and I voted. And you voted. We should vote. And uh, here's the thing. We can rest in. No matter if the person I voted for gets his district or whatever, the person I voted for doesn't. God is on His throne in heaven. And that's that's what matters. And guess what? It's not a surprise to Him on who gets what election and all of that. He knows. Scripture tells us this, that God holds in His hand the heart of those who lead like, like that. The, the heart of those who lead people. And so we can rest in that. Continuing on to verse number 3 here, to verse 5, we come to John's third experience in heaven and and our glimpse of heaven this morning, and that's this, God's glory. God's glory. He sees God's glory. Verse number 3. Let's take a look at verse 3 through 5. It says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And we'll stop right there. What we see here in the beginning of verse 3 and with God's glory is John is really incapable of describing the glory of God. And as you have heard Pastor Doug explain, some key words to Bible study are the words like and as. So John is forced to make some comparisons to things he recognizes and that his readers relate to. Folks, John is seeing some things that I'm sure just blew his mind. And we would not even comprehend today. And so so he he describes some things in a a way readers and us today uh, could relate. Here's here's some things we want to point out to you this morning. John mentions he who sat on the throne like some stones. That's your first one under here. Stones. He mentions these stones, a jasper 
and a sardius stone. Now what's interesting is later on in Revelation, we'll get to chapter 21, and the jasper is mentioned as being clear as crystal. So this could be a reference to diamond. Uh, the sardius stone comes from the area of Sardis, one of the churches that we've just finished studying here. Uh, which is one of those seven churches of Asia Minor and the city of Sardis. And that stone is blood red, much like the ruby. So a couple of stones here. Now commentators agree that the meaning is not clear what these stones are about. All right? We're going to get into a lot of that. You'll read stuff, this guy says this and that. and But here's one thing we can always do. We can compare Scripture with Scripture. You know, the best commentary that you can go out and buy on the Bible is the Bible. And as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can, uh, we can get clues and glimpses of many of these things right here. I do know this from the Bible, that the breastplate that a priest wore way back in the Old Testament contained these stones. And so we think of, we can think of redemption that was provided for us. Uh, by Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, and also Jesus as our high priest. We can think of those two things as we see these stones. The next thing we see is a rainbow. A rainbow. It's around the throne. and We read it here in, in verse number 3 that there was a rainbow, the last part of that verse, around the throne in appearance like an emerald. He describes this rainbow and that it's all around the throne. And when I hear rainbow, I think of multicolors, you know. But the Bible says this rainbow around the throne was, was an emerald green in appearance. So uh, it seemed to have some different shades of green, but what protruded gave out an emerald green appearance. That, that's incredible. I, and I had to wonder, when I read this and we're studying this out this week, I immediately, and some of you are weird like me, your, your mind is sitting there going, I wonder if Frank Baum, the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, you know, referenced this passage or was thinking about Revelation chapter 4 when he came up with the Emerald City. You know, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out when we get to heaven. But I'm sure it really won't matter then anyways, will it? <laughs> That's just how my mind works. Well, this is, this is exciting. And make some notes on this. It's worth noting that the rainbow is mentioned in the first and last books of the Bible. Genesis, and then again in the book of Revelation. In Genesis, the rainbow was a symbol of a promise that God had made to Noah and all his descendants. After the flood had destroyed everyone on the whole earth, God set a rainbow in the sky and promised Noah that he would never again destroy the world with a global flood. So the rainbow was a promise of his grace and his mercy. But here in Revelation chapter 4, we're given a picture of the rapture, the safe arrival of God's people into heaven before God's next global judgment is poured out. And what do we see? A rainbow, perhaps again, the symbol that God has kept His promise. Just as He promised back in Genesis that He would never destroy the whole world with a flood again and kept that promise, now in Revelation chapter 4, He has safely delivered His people into heaven before the tribulation, the next judgment we see here. And so uh, perhaps a symbol of the promise kept, 
another promise kept. Again, speaking of the truth, we see in that a picture that believers will not be here on earth for any of the tribulation. Let's look at verse number 4. It said, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the next thing we want you to notice in, in this section is 24 elders. There's 24 elders, and these are important. The natural question then is, who are these people, these 24 elders? Who are these people? Are they angels? If not, are they humans? If they are humans, who do they represent? And all, all of that. So I believe, you know, the remember the first rule of Bible study is context, context, context. Let's, let's look at the scriptures for what the Bible says, uh, even in other places. So first of all, these 24 elders, they're seated on thrones. Well, nowhere else in Scripture do we find angels seated on thrones or ruling or given that kind of authority. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us about angels and how they are ministering spirits to believers. They're God's messengers. They do God's bidding. Salvation's not for them. It's reserved for people. All these things. And I believe we can you know, fairly quickly rule out here that... Uh, these are not angels seated on these thrones. Uh, you also see here uh, the word used in, our, in the original language in, in this passage right here for elders is presbyteros, and that's only used for people. It's always reserved only for people. You also see this robes of white and these crowns of gold on their head. And these are descriptions in the Bible of things that are given to faithful believers. So these are people not angels or anything else like that. So, if they are people, what people are they? Who are these people? Well, there is a lot written about this topic right here and these 24 elders. So, I will mention one that uh, I, I believe because of comparing Scripture with Scripture is very accurate. In the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, there are the New Testament, the church is represented by the 12 apostles. You've got 12 and 12 there. So a representation of Old Testament saints and New Testament saints adds up to 24. And I believe what we have here is a representation of Old and New Testament saints, perhaps symbolizing the completion of God's people in heaven. Um, by the way, when we get to chapter 21 in Revelation, we will uh, read about the heavenly city there in heaven. And there are 12 gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, one tribe per gate. And then we'll also find out that there are 12 foundations on that city, and there are the 12 apostles' names on those foundations, one apostle per foundation. So we see again in heaven the 12 and 12 symbolized there. In verse 5, we see something else that's important uh, to point out here. It says, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne. And we'll stop right there. So in verse 5, the first thing we see is lightning, thunder, and voices. Okay? Proceeding from the throne. What is this? What's going on here? Well, uh, commentators pretty much agree here that these are symbols of judgment symbols of judgment these are storm warnings if you will that are coming judgment is about to follow it's it's getting ready to happen 
Now, um, when we're outside or we're, you know, we're in our homes and there is thunder and lightning, hopefully not voices, but thunder, that's a, that's a symbol of something else altogether. We've got a class for that. <laughs> but you know, you see thunder and lightning, it's a storm warning, right? There's a storm getting ready to come through or, you know, go right around or something like that. It was this past uh, spring, and it was around the time of the big hailstorm that came through, you know, 104th and, and out into Brighton and beyond. Um, it was a, around that time we just had some bad storms, didn't we? And there, there was a time there where the sky was black and the... Um, the, uh, the sirens were going off, and, and my wife and I, we're from Kansas, you know, the land of Dorothy and all that. And so we uh, we got in the basement, you know, we're, we're taking that seriously. We get down there in the basement with the kids, and sirens are going off, and we're, you know, watching TV or have the radio on or something. We're listening to what's going on, and it kind of seems to pass. And uh, I've got a picture up here I want to show you, too, of that day. Uh, that was that day that I'm describing out at DIA. And there's like a wall cloud, kind of funnel cloud thing going on there. Really bad skies, right? And so I go up, as a good dad, I go upstairs and, you know, I want to look outside and see what's going on now. Is there sunlight? Has anything happened? Has anything changed? And I'm going towards the front door and I get a text on my cell phone. And it's Pastor Doug. And he says, come outside. Certainly not. And so, I'm, no. And so I go to the front door. Caleb was there too. And, and I open the front door, and he's parked in his truck right outside my house. And he's like, we're, st- we're chasing storms. We're... <laughs> Get in. <laughs> so, and he's like, they're saying there's one touchdown out by DIA. We're going to go check it out. I couldn't believe it. And the, and the storm was the storm was moving on, but he was outside wanting to chase this storm down. And I just got to tell you folks, that is what happens when you grow up in Oklahoma. Right there. <laughs> no offense if you're from Oklahoma. I'm sure it's a great place to be from. So but he was chasing he was chasing storms, you know, and, and checking out what was going on in the skies. Well, you, as you know, you know, with modern technology, we have those tornado sirens, and they can give minutes of preparation, and there are hurricane uh, things in place where they give some warning, even days sometimes, where that technology can prepare us for a hurricane if, you know, if you live in the hurricane area. And then there's technology being worked on right now to give us warning of earthquakes. And if you live, you know, in Southern California or other areas where there are quakes, um, Right now, you know that you just you have to watch your pet's nervous behavior because they may give off some signals that an earthquake is coming, or they might just have to go outside and use the bathroom. So we don't know. But listen, here in our text, the storm warnings are coming from the throne of God. This is a righteous and holy judgment. And, and when the storm arrives, no one will be chasing it. They will be fleeing from it. They will be running from the storm, and no one will escape it. It will be a global or or worldwide tribulation described in chapter number 6. 
And so uh, we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. Also mentioned in the last part of verse 5, and this is in your notes as well, the sevenfold Spirit of God. The sevenfold Spirit of God is mentioned here after these lightnings and, and thunder uh, coming from the throne. What is this? Well, the last part of verse 5 here, John, the Apostle John, sees the third person of the Trinity, symbolized by seven lamps burning which is the sevenfold spirit of God, which Pastor Doug talked about during chapter 1 in our study of Revelation. And a better way to translate this in English would be the sevenfold appearance of the Holy Spirit. And this takes us back, and you can check it out on your own time. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, uh, you can go back there and read sometime where there is the sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. But it is He that John sees, the one and Holy Spirit. So we've seen the Trinity in, in verse number one, Jesus, uh, uh, other places in Scripture, a description of His voice sounding like a trumpet. We see the Father in verse number two, sitting on the throne in heaven. And here in verse number five, the Holy Spirit. There's something else that John sees and writes about, and it's this, a sea of glass. A sea of glass. And it's in verse number six. It says this, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back so the first part of verse 6 there we read about this area in front of the throne okay it's right in front and John doesn't know how to describe it exactly so he he describes it as being like a sea of glass now when we get to chapter 1 of Revelation John tells us that there is no sea or oceans in heaven. So he's using here in chapter 4 a metaphor that it had that appearance. Now, many commentators have many ideas about what this sea of glass might be. So I have concluded that we don't know. <laughs> because there's such wide opinion on the matter. And listen, it's not important that we figure that out, but I do feel like it represents the holiness of God because it is right in front of the throne, crystal clear. I do know that, and you can research this later, that in the Bible elsewhere in Exodus chapter 4, Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, and about 70 leaders of Israel, they go up to Mount Sinai to commune with the Lord, and there Moses describes this area under the Lord as being like glass. So we know that. Also remember when Moses met God for the very first time, at the burning bush, God said to Moses, Take off your sandals, for the ground that you are standing on is holy ground. So I tend to believe that in verse 6 here, it represents, the sea of glass represents God's holiness and presence. God's holiness and presence. Now, continuing on in verse number 6, uh, we come to John's fourth experience, 6 through 11 here in in his glimpse of heaven. And that's this, number four, God's worship team. God's worship team. And take a look at verse number six again, and we'll go through verse eight. It says this, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. We'll stop right there. Next to the throne are four living creatures. Now, thankfully, we don't have to guess on this one because we would be guessing for a really long time. It's in the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament in chapter 10, and he tells us what these creatures are. He describes them as uh, what some would call a higher order of spirit beings. Some might even label them and throw them in with angels, and that would be okay. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 10 calls them cherubim. Cherubim. And these cherubim in heaven have the divine privilege of worshiping God. They're worshiping Him around the throne, day and night, without stopping. They lead the worship of God at the throne. Now, as we read, John describes these living creatures, and some might conclude that they're bizarre, even gross. And I just suggest that we've probably been watching too many Twilight Zone marathons on Labor Day weekend or whatever, um, to put it in that kind of a, a concept, they are reflecting the beauty and holiness of God. So I want to just suggest to you this morning that they're probably very beautiful. Verse 6 says that they are full of eyes in the front and back, which means they're a lot like our mothers. <laughs> they see everything. Actually, it symbolizes their awareness to everything that is going on. They have six wings. You know, it's in Isaiah chapter 6. We read about these spirit beings, seraphim and cherubim. They're, they're these spirit beings, kind of closely related. Uh, they have six wings. Isaiah writes about how with two they fly around the throne, with two they cover their face, and with two wings they cover their feet. Uh, I think that's just symbolic of of God's holiness, that, that covering, covering themselves, their faces from God's brilliant holiness. No wonder they cry out, holy, holy, holy. You might just circle that in the pages of your Bible. It's as if there's a holy for one of each of the Trinity. It's also in my reading this week, I discovered that in the original languages, these holy, holy, holies used a certain number of times meant perfectly holy. And so they cover themselves from God's glory and His holiness. And they, and they cry out and they worship constantly. Listen, folks, God is described in many ways in the pages of Scripture. God is love. God is life. God is light. God is mercy. God is truth. You know, God is justice. And all those are true and they're great. But if you are looking for one word that really sums up the essence of God... It is holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, they say, as they worship around the throne. Listen, on the subject of worship, notice with me that the act of worship in heaven is something that's taken very seriously. You know? It's something that takes place nonstop. Day and night, verse 8 says to us, we see all creation worshiping God. Something that we should remember and reflect upon. You know? I, I know this never happens at the Orchard Church, but being in church world for uh, many years vocationally in a full-time capacity, um, 
coming in late to a worship service, leaving early, talking to people during worship time, texting, balancing your checkbook, giving yourself a pedicure. I wasn't joking. No. Uh, you, you know, th- these are things we need to consider. These are things we need to think long and hard about. Daydreaming, counting the lights in here. Uh, you know, all of those things. We need to be careful when it comes to our attitude on the subject of worship. You know, let me say, we, we know some, some people come in from work here and they're, they're going to be late and you've worked all night and there's nothing that can be done about that. But, you know, once in a while, uh, you might hear someone say, well, I'll, you know, I'll just hang out here in the lobby or whatever or eat this and that and then I'll go in for the main part, which is the Bible study. Can I draw your attention to Revelation chapter 4 here and what we're reading about? (laughs) You know, uh, do you see a Bible study? I I don't. I see the worship of God. I see all creation worshiping, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what's going on in heaven here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that when we get to heaven, uh, we shall know all things, just like we're known. We're going to know. You know, we'll know about... Our, our questions will be answered because we will know that knowledge will be given to us. And, you know, here now we study the Bible and we, we want to understand God more and our walk with Him. And we study and we understand and we, we want to gain more knowledge and all of that's great. But when we get to heaven, that won't be a component. There's not going to be Bible studies going on in heaven, but we know there will be the worship of God. And that's a wonderful thing. It's in verse number 7. The, uh, the cherubim here are described as having the appearance of a lion, a calf, face like a man, and an eagle. All of these things here. Now, we don't know dogmatically what this symbolizes or means. Again, there's a lot written on this, and there's a lot that's, you go, yeah, that kind of makes sense, and there's a lot that's just really bizarre and comparing scripture with scripture you know it doesn't make sense so there's a there's a lot about this commentators are really guessing on what this means and here's what i want to here's a point i want to make some people get caught up when they study the book of revelation on these four creatures and what that means exactly and you know in other places uh, about end times and what this and that symbolizes but i can can i just submit to you this morning that it is not about the creatures or what their faces are like. It is about the worship of God. It's about Him. Uh, Look at verse 9 with me. Let's read 9 as we continue this worship experience. 9 through 11. Verse 9 says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So in verse 9, we continue to to worship and see God's worship team here, and we see that these cherubim worship God. And the 24 elders are here, which represent us as believers will be there, take off their crowns and cast them before the throne. Hence the title of this message, Casting Crowns. You know, for you Christian music buffs, there's a a group out there called Casting Crowns, right? 
And, uh, you know, when I heard that for the very first time, I just remember thinking, oh, they've got, like, the best name ever. You know, it just captures it all. It's a great name. But just picture it uh, with me for a moment. Us, believers, if you've placed your faith in Christ, before the throne of God, in heaven, we have received these crowns. They are on our heads. God has rewarded us and given us victory crowns. Rewards. And what's our response? Led by the 24 elders, we take them off and we throw them at the feet of our God. Why will we do that? You might be going, I don't know if I'll be doing that. Let me tell you why. Because we don't need to go to heaven to find out why. We can know now. We see the holiness of God. And we have this crown. And it's like, what is this crown to us? It's not about us. It's about Him. It's about what God has done. He has redeemed us. It's about what He has already done. Worshiping Him now in heaven. Not reflecting on something that we did, but that He did. God gives us a crown and it becomes our offering, so to speak. And we just take them off our heads and we cast them at the feet of God on the throne. So we end with verse 11, which we read, that says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, we were created by God to know Him in a personal relationship and worship Him. Therefore, don't tune out here, whenever you worship God, you are fulfilling the very purpose for which you were created. Wow, that is deep. Right? That is heavy right there. One final thing. As we face trials, and, and we will, and we go through difficult times, we get into the Word of God, and we should. It is where we find truth. And we go through trials, and we pray, and we should. That's a no-brainer. But there's another element we often miss. In times of trial, in times of disappointment, it's worship. We need to worship a lot more. From struggling with loneliness and depression dealing with stressful things on your job or it could be even as simple as the stress of your commute to work and, and home, you know what? Worship the Lord. It will change your perspective. Worship Him. It's the very purpose for which you were created. The very purpose. There's a last statement in your notes and it says this. Worship is the purpose of our creation, but it's also the priority heaven. That's the priority. And we need to remember that. Well, what is our response here to Revelation chapter 4? Well, I believe our only response here, our only response can be to stand and worship the Lord. I've asked the worship team to come back out and lead us. This isn't the end of the service. I'm going to come back out and preach for a while. We'll wrap up in some way. You know, we're not, we're not finished. But what this is, is, is an opportunity to respond to God. 
I've had people over the years say to me, Barry, it was in a worship service the first time ever. I raised my hands and really gave the sign of surrender that tears just broke out of my eyes and fell. It was in a worship service that I turned over some sin to God. We have an opportunity. So would you stand with the worship team as they lead us?